Well, this past year we studied verse by verse through 1 Peter, and we're now going to enter into a study of the book of Daniel. So open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. The book of Daniel is a favorite book for many Christians. You might have heard the fact that we were teaching through this and thought of prophecy. If you love prophecy, you'll love this Old Testament prophet. Daniel really is the key to understanding Jesus' prophecies and also the book of Revelation. Maybe you thought of the narratives. If you love narratives, then Daniel has some of the best and most familiar. Daniel in the lion's den and yet the fiery furnace. If you love history, Daniel speaks of many empires and future nations. But most important, if you love the Lord, and that's what this book is about. That's what we're going to study. As I prepared this, I will confess, I was very excited and thought this is going to be a lot of fun. And then I realized it's a lot harder than it looks. This is, this is definitely different than teaching through First Peter. But I believe this is what, God's, this is what God has for us the ne- these next few months. And... I trust the Holy Spirit will use this in our church to awaken our souls to what the Lord is doing in this world and to eternal realities. Just let me give you an overview of the book. As you look at, if you read through the book of Daniel, chapter 1 really is the introduction to this book. If you notice in verse 1, he starts off speaking of the fall of Judah to the Babylonians. And at the end of chapter 1, verse 21, you'll notice that Daniel records a person named Cyrus. So in verse 1, that's really the year 60, or, uh, 605 B.C., that's when King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, came and conquered Jerusalem. And then verse 21 actually takes place about 70 years later in 536 B.C., and Cyrus is the king over the Persian Empire. And so that really spans the ministry of Daniel, about 70 years of ministry, and really gives an introduction to the entire book, into Daniel's life, but also into the work of God through Daniel and the prophecies of Daniel. And then if you go to chapter 2, verse 4, look at chapter 2, verse 4, you can see the start of Daniel's prophetic ministry. In verse 4, the Chaldeans speak to the king, and Daniel starts to record the rest of these, this chapter and then the next few chapters in a language called Aramaic. And so from chapter 2, verse 4 through chapter 7, he actually writes in the original language in Aramaic. So chapter 1 is in Hebrew. These six chapters are in Aramaic. And really what he's speaking about, he's speaking of the, the nation of the Gentiles, the time of the Gentiles. And so that's why he's He writes in Aramaic. It was the spoken language of the Babylonians, of everyday person, every, um, the common people, I should say, in in Babylon. And then in chapter 8, he switches back to Hebrew, and he speaks of God's work through his people, particularly his Messiah, and he speaks of God's providence through, through the nation of Israel. So the entire book of Daniel, it's a very fascinating book, but really the entire book of Daniel highlights the providence of God. The providence of God in history, but also in individual lives. It's impossible to read this book and not come away with an appreciation for the providential hand of God in world history. In fact, I would recommend that you, as we do this study, read through the book of Daniel And follow along with me as I study it. This week and next week, we're going to look at this introduction, chapter 1. And we're going to notice, even in this chapter, how the providence of God is highlighted as the theme for the book. By the time we're done with Daniel, I I guess my prayer is that as a church, we would have a a firm confidence in God's providence. And that God's providence would be a comfort to us. God's providence would be something that would cause us to be able to see the world events around us and understand what God is doing. But most importantly, really, is to recognize God's providence in our life and be able to see God's 
hand working in our life. Now, when I say the word providence, it's kind of a big Bible word. You might not know what that means or might not remember what it means. What is providence? What does providence mean? Well, providence is God governing over all things and using the natural world, the spirit world, and human choices to bring about his will for history and for your life. So that's my definition there of providence. It's God governing over all things, using the natural world, that's the laws of nature that includes rain and sun and earthquakes, disasters. It includes innovation and technology, the things that we invent and we use. It's the spirit world, which refers to Satan's battle really against God. But also it includes human choices, which speak to right now 7 billion people on earth and the choices they make. And he, he actually takes all those and is able to bring about his will for history and for your life. That's providence. John Piper defined providence. This is the topic of, or the title for my sermon here today. He defined it like this. Providence is God's purposeful sovereignty. He said, it extends down to the flight of electrons, up to the movement of galaxies, into the hearts of men. Its nature is wise and just and good. Its goal is the Christ-exalting glorification of God to the gladness of a redeemed people in a new world. I don't know if you caught that, but he has a new book out. You can read it. I think it's like 500 pages, so go for it. But God's providence. I believe Daniel viewed his life through this lens of the providence of God. In fact, notice in verse 2, look down in Daniel chapter 1 in verse 2. The Bible says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his, speaking of the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, into his hand. So who caused Judah to go into captivity? Who caused Judah to, and the king of, of Judah to be defeated? It was the Lord, right? Adonai, that's the word there, Hebrew word, Adonai, the ruler, the king of kings. That's God, the ruler of over all. But if you read that, you might think to yourself, but wait a second. Wasn't it the, the king of Babylon? Wasn't it King Nebuchadnezzar? Wasn't he the one that did that? And what's amazing about God's providence is that, he, yes, King Babylon, or King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, he came down, he conquered Jerusalem, and he was unaware that he was a servant of God. And God moved his heart and his army in such a way that he directed the work of God to the people of God in judgment in Jerusalem. And then look down in verse 9. The Bible says, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. We'll talk about this in a moment. But God was also in Babylon. Not only was he in Babylon, he was working in the hearts of people and using their decisions to bring about what he wanted to take place. Then look down in verse 17. As for these four youths, speaking of Daniel and his three companions, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding, really from God, in all visions and dreams. So God was providentially working to even bless those Jews in exile. And so in these three verses, we can see God providentially works through calamity, He works through favor in the hearts of other people. He works to bring success and blessing. And all of that is attributed to God's work. And so really my outline for today follows those three verses and and highlights God's providential work. First, in verse 2, God's providential work of judgment. In verse 9, God's providential work of testing. And then verse 17, God's providential work of triumph and blessing. And I believe what the Lord wants us to learn here in the book of Daniel, but particularly in chapter 1, is this. That we are to trust that God providentially works according to his purposes. As we look at the events around us and in our world, 
And frankly, as we look at our own life, we trust that God is at work. work. Nothing happens by accident. We trust that God providentially works according to his purposes. Now, as you study the book of Daniel, or maybe you heard it in a Sunday class taught like this, you might have heard it taught, or you might study it in a way that says, be like Daniel, you know, dare to be a Daniel. You heard that song? Okay. And the idea is, is like, if Daniel did it, then you probably should do it. Appropriate what Daniel did. I'm just going to tell you, we're not going to teach the book like that, okay? There are some things that Daniel did that we should consider, and actually probably some things we should apply. He prayed three times a day. Should we pray more? Absolutely, we should pray more. He trusted the word of God. He trusted the, the book of Jeremiah and the prophecies in there. And so should we trust the word of God? Absolutely. But there was some other things that Daniel did that we're not going to appropriate. I mean, there were certain foods he refused to eat. So should we refuse those foods? You know, there's a diet out there called the Daniel diet. Should we all follow the Daniel diet? I mean, Daniel did it. Daniel was a eunuch. We're not going to follow that. Daniel interpreted dreams and visions. God has not blessed us with the ability to do that. So as we study the book of Daniel, we're not speaking about how can we be like Daniel. Definitely, we'll look at his character and we'll see the gift of grace God gave to him to be like Christ. But we're not going to focus on Daniel. We're going to focus on the main point of Daniel, and that is God. The main point of Daniel is to exalt God as the supreme king and for us to submit to his providential rule in our life. God wants us to look at life not just as a bunch of of decisions that are being made and some affect us negatively and some affect us positively and then we breathe, breathe, and we die. God wants us to see that he is at work in our life. God has eternal purposes and plans for nations and for kings and for America and for China and for Iran. But God also has personal plans for you. So I hope that as we look at this book in the next few months that you will have a grand view, majestic view of God and his providence. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time this morning in his word. Father, we are looking at a remarkable book that the Holy Spirit wrote through the hand and mind of Daniel. So I pray this morning that that same Holy Spirit who inspired, who moved Daniel along to write these words will also help us to understand and to trust you. Lord, we need hearts that are soft and are pliable towards your will. So Lord, work in our heart in that way. May we trust you more because of the word that we hear this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The invasion of Normandy in 19, or sorry, in June 6, 1944, was probably one of the most important days in the history of Europe, definitely one of the most important days for the freedom of Europe. If the Allies had failed in the invasion of Normandy in World War II, we could all be speaking German right now, right? Or this part of the United States would be speaking Japanese, and that part, the eastern part of the United States, German. But the point is, there was a pretty pivotal time, pivotal time in the history of our world. There was a German general named Erwin Rommel who was tasked with leading the defense of Normandy. This guy, they say, had a brilliant mind with strategy, especially when he came to the weather and interpreting um, how things were going to take place within, on the battlefield. He was a brilliant German tactician. But something happened. His wife's birthday happened to be on June 6, 1944. And he decided to take his wife on a surprise vacation. Do you realize that he actually left to go on vacation with his wife on June 6, night before June 6, 1944, and he was not there to lead the German military in the defense of France, which was very strategic. I should say it was a very strategic flaw on their part because 
of that. The Nazi troops were unable to gauge weather conditions without his expertise, and the Allies took advantage and won the day. Now, when you think about things like that, why do accidents like that happen and change the course of history? Well, as believers, when we understand the providence of God, we look at things like that and we recognize that God is the one who's at work, even behind enemy lines like the Germans. If you believe in God's providence and you believe that God is orchestrating all events for his purposes, so the providence of God gives us great comfort and great confidence. I don't, don't know about you, but when I watch the news and I think about what's happening in our world, sometimes it can seem like things are out of control. Right? You, you hear what's going on in China and really what China is doing in the rest of the world. They're basically taking over many parts of the world. I read an article on February 13th, 2021, just a little over two months ago in the New York Post that, that reported on all these concentration camps that are over there in China and, and how there are many minorities, many of them Christians, who are enslaved to work to 12, 15, some even 20 hours a day to make some of the products that we enjoy. That's terrible. Think about the shenanigans going on in Washington. Think about Burma. There's a military coup. Churches are being demolished. Christians are being heavily persecuted in Iraq. Radical Islam is back on the rise. I mean, so you can watch the news, and you can be really stressed out, right? How many watch the news get stressed out? Yeah, there you go. And you can actually start thinking, is God really in charge? And what is really happening in our world? Now, let me just have a little footnote to that, and that is you have to also recognize the source of who's reporting those things. <laughs> There's an agenda to keep the stress high so that you keep watching so they can keep having money flow in there. Money, power are two motivating factors for them. But as you look at the world, is God really in charge? And what is he really doing? But as we look at Daniel, we recognize that, yes, the Lord oversees all. And we have full confidence he is the king on the throne. So our first point, our first aspect of providence we're going to look at this morning is that God's providence brings judgment to those who are disobedient. God's providential judgment causes pain. Look down in verse 1. We're going to read verse 1 through verse 4. In the year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. These first four verses here took place in the year 605 B.C., Again, like I said, Jerusalem surrendered to the, the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. And he basically came and he looted the city. And he went into Yahweh's temple and looted the gold and the vessels in that temple. But he also stole another important resource. And that is he looked at the young men that were there, the young men in their teen years, young men who were educated and who looked good and strong and he decided he was going to take these young men back to Babylon. And that included Daniel and his three companions. These young men would have probably been 14, 15, maybe at the oldest, 16 years old. So, so how many in here are 14 or 15 years old? Anyone like that in here? You got a couple? Okay, so we're talking about that age right there. And think of what would have been going on in their minds and in the minds of their parents as they are kidnapped by the Babylonian military and they're marched back to Babylon. 
I mean, you can imagine as they're going back that the, the soldiers are singing praises to their god. Their god's name, they had many gods, but the main god was Marduk. I, I can imagine them singing songs like, like, how great is Marduk? Sing with me, you know, right? And I can imagine they're singing songs like that. And these guys, I mean, in their minds, Yahweh was defeated, right? And Marduk has won. It could be something they could be tempted to believe. Try to sense the devastation this would have been to those young Hebrew men. Especially since it seems from this text here that these young men were raised to love the Lord. If you look at their names, and we'll do that in a moment, but if you look at their names, you recognize their parents named them after Yahweh, after the one true God. And if you look through the rest of the book of Daniel, you recognize that these guys had in their hearts the love for the Lord and in their minds the knowledge of the scriptures. So these, these young men, therefore, would have probably grown up in some type of Hebrew schooling. In fact, we probably can conclude that as well because four years previous to this captivity, King Josiah was their king. And if you know your Jewish history, you know King Josiah was one of the good guys. He was a good king. He was a godly king. He tore down many of the idols that were in the temple and around Jerusalem. Because of King Josiah, the book of the law was found, and he read it to all the people. And King Josiah and many people repented of their sin and turned to the Lord. Not everyone did, but there were a remnant that did. And it's likely these young men came from families who were a part of that revival. And so you think about it, Daniel and his three companions, they grew up in their elementary years, you know, as, as 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 10, uh, 10, 11-year-old age boys, they grew up in this time of spiritual revival in the land of Israel. Would you think about the providence of God? That's pretty amazing to think about, that God used that time to prepare these men for a time when they would be taken into captivity and obviously be used in a remarkable way in history. When I consider something like this, I can't help but think about people like Darlene Dibler Rose. I've spoken about her before. She was a young woman who grew up in a church like this in the Midwest, and when she was, while she was in church, she um, memorized the word of God with her church family and her children's programs there. When she was a young woman, she got married, and her and her husband went over to be missionaries. Unexpectedly, her island was invaded by the Japanese. For four years, she found herself in a Japanese concentration camp. She was abused and tortured. Bugs crawled on her for four years. She was starved, and she was in isolation. And this is what she wrote after she was out of her time there in that Japanese concentration camp, she wrote this. In the cell, I was grateful now for those days in church as a child when I had memorized many single verses, complete chapters and psalms, as well as whole books of the Bible. The Lord fed me with the living bread that had been stored up that day when fresh supply was cut off by the loss of my Bible. He brought daily comfort and encouragement and, yes, joy. In the providence of God, there was a church that encouraged the children in that church to memorize God's word, and they had no clue in the future what this girl would be facing. But yet God used it in her life to give her the supply of joy and really the precious bread of life for her in that isolation. I think about us parents and grandparents. Do you know the future for your children? I mean, as we look at the future of our country, it doesn't look the great, really great. But even if they go somewhere else in another part of the world, do you know the future for them? And we don't know the future, do we? We don't know, but God does. We can't know the future. But listen, we can prepare them for it. And God can use us to prepare our children to serve the Lord and his providential plan. And so we can be a part of God's providence in that way. That's why I am so passionate about us as parents and us as, if you're a grandparent, of encouraging your children to memorize and meditate on the word of God. And that's why I'm so passionate about 
tree trackers and having these kids memorize and meditate God's word because I think there'll be a day in the future when they will, in their mind, thank us for the investment that we made in their lives in that way. God's providence allowed Daniel and his companions to grow up with some type of godly influence. However, for the rest of the people of of Judah, that was not the case. Many of them continued, even after that revival, they continued to follow idols and worship these false gods. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear about the gods like Baal and Ashtaroth and Moloch and them worshiping these gods, I think, that's so primitive. That's so weird. Like, why do they do that? You know, you, you think that same way? I'm like, I don't even relate to that. But then if you study these, these idols they worshiped, I think actually you can relate to them more than you think. Baal was the god of the weather. Or you could say it like this. He was the god of prosperity. I mean, that was an agricultural society. If you didn't get rain, if you didn't get sun, well, they got sun a lot, but if you didn't get rain, then your crops didn't grow. And if your crops didn't grow, you didn't have money because your money was in your crops and in your animals there. And everyone around there believed and preached on a constant basis, if you want a good harvest, if you want more money, Baal is the one who brings the rain, so you better sacrifice to him. So really, Baal was the god of wealth. Go to him. He can increase your pocketbooks. And then you have Ashtaroth here. Ashtaroth, she was a god of fertility. She was the goddess, I should say, of fertility. She was a goddess who gave you children. Basically, you worshipped her with prostitutes. So she really was the god of sexual perversion. Then you have Moloch. Moloch's name means king, and he really is the god of power. Parents would take their children out to the valley of Hinnom, and they would place their child on this big uh, steel, a metal, I should say, metal bowl, and his arms were outstretched like this, and in his belly was open, and there was a fire going and blazing, and they would take their children, put their child on that, the arms of that bull, and their child would roast alive. So there was child sacrifice that was taking place. And this, the idea of, of this is, if I sacrifice my child to Moloch, then, then this God will keep us from being punished by invasion. He'll keep us from those coming in and invading us, or, or maybe it'll help me get ahead in life if I do this. And really the idea was that if I do this, it will give me something back. It will give me some type of more power or safety in some way. Therefore, Jerusalem was filled with this worship of money, sex, and power. How much has really changed in 2,600 years? I think as we look at these idols right here, we think to ourselves, oh, we can't relate with that. But friends, this is what is taking place in our country. This is the battle that's taking place in your life. And you might not be bowing down to these, these idols, but in our hearts, we are tempted to worship and be controlled by these sinful desires. How many lies, how many lies are told for financial gain? How many manip people manipulate in their workplace to get the better position? How many students cheat on their tests and on their, in their classes so they can get perfect scores, so they can get ahead? How many are enslaved to the passions of lust and sex and desire? And the point is, is that we are all bowing in our country before these gods. We're no different, really, than these people. Would you turn over to Jap uh, Jeremiah chapter 25? Jeremiah was really the preacher of the day for Daniel. If Daniel heard a preacher growing up, it would have been Jeremiah. Jeremiah would go into the streets, he would go into the temple, and he would preach God's word. And so it's likely that Jeremiah grew up listening to, or I should say Daniel grew up listening to Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 25, we see one of these sermons that God told Jeremiah to preach. And so I can imagine that Jeremiah was in the temple or on a street corner, and he announced these words right here, Jeremiah chapter 25. Look at verse 2. The Bible says that Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The idea isn't that they all gathered there, but it was he was speaking to anyone who would come and listen. And then look in verse 4. It says, you have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear. Although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, 
He's saying, you haven't listened to God's word. You've rejected the word of God. Verse 5, saying, this is what the word of God says, turn now every one of you from his evil way and evil deeds and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you. I mean, God's providence brought them to this land and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve them and worship them or provoke me to anger with the works of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. God actually wants providentially to bless them. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, you might, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Verse 8. So what is God going to do? Because they have pursued these idols, because they have indulged their hearts with their own flesh and their own sin. Verse 8. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations, and I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation. Notice he calls King Nebuchadnezzar his servant. And again, it's not the idea that he was truly serving the Lord. It's the idea that God used him to bring judgment upon that land and those people. And look in verse 11. The Bible says, This whole land shall come a ru- become a ruin and a waste. These nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Now tuck that away in your mind as we study prophecy. Verse 12, and after the 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their 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 iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. And so God says he's going to punish them. He tells them why he's going to punish them. And he tells them how long it's going to last. So go back to Daniel chapter 1. Jeremiah prophesied and promised that God, God's providential work would be a work of judgment. God promises you will reap what you sow. There are consequences to sin, and there are consequences in this life, but also, most importantly, there are consequences in the life to come. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. In other words, you're working your whole life sinning against God. And at the very end of life, he will give you your paycheck. And that is death. Not not just physical death. That's spiritual and eternal death. Eternal separation from God forever. But praise God for the rest of Romans 6, 23. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus and Christ Jesus our Lord. And for those of us who turn from our sin and turn to the Savior Jesus Christ, he offers us forgiveness and the gift of life. We praise God for that. And I would say if you're in here today and you're without Christ and sin has a hold on you, that Christ can deliver you. And he offers himself, himself as a free gift. He took the punishment for your sin. He took the pain for your sin so you would not have to. So Daniel chapter 1, we see God's providential work of judgment for sin. So look in verse 1, he says, in the year that in the year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So here you have King Jehoiakim, who is the king. Now he is an evil king. He is following his own heart. He is worshiping the gods of money and sex and power. King Nebuchadnezzar actually came against Jerusalem three times. The first time was here in Daniel 1. And the next two times, he comes and basically destroys the entire country and destroys the entire city. The purpose that God had for Daniel, I should say the purpose that the king of Babylon had in taking Daniel was to indoctrinate these men to be obedient heathen Babylonians. He wanted to take these men to teach them the culture, the language of the Babylonians, 
and to put them in positions of authority in the Babylonian Empire. But consider the pain that this would have caused to their parents, to the Jewish people, but also to these young men. <clears throat> when we think of God's providence, God's providence uh, of judgment, it hurts people who are disobedient so that they will repent, but also it hurts people who are faithful to the Lord. I mean, these men were taken from their homeland never to live there again. They were made eunuchs, and that is the most extreme form of physical abuse. They were stripped of their culture and forced to assimilate into the heathen society of Babylon. They were indoctrinated with the religious stories of Marduk. And so then you see in verse 5, look at verse 5. The Bible says, the king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years. At the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Belteshazzar. Oh, I'm not going to get this one. He called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Sorry for my throat here. I'm, I'm trying to survive. Please bear with me. Each of these men were given names by their parents that represented that their parents trusted in Yahweh, in the one true God. But the Babylonians gave them names that sought to replace Yahweh with their idols. Daniel means God is my judge. El or Elohim is my judge. He, his name was changed to Belteshazzar, which means Bel, that's a false god, an idol they had there, Bel protects life. Hananiah means Yahweh or Yah is gracious. The Babylonians wanted his name to be Shadrach, which means commanded by Aku, which is the god for their moon god. Commanded by Aku. Mishael means who is like El, who is like Elohim, that is the one true God. But the Babylonians' name, Shadrach, means who is like Aku. Azariah means Yahweh has helped, but the Babylonians want to name him Abednego, which means helper of Nebo, which is one of their false gods. From the human perspective, this is devastating. I mean, think about it. Nobody wants your kid to be kidnapped and taken to a foreign land, you know, taken to Tehran and given a Muslim name and raised in that culture. I mean, no one wants that, right? I mean, that's, that's devastating. But again, we have to look at the scriptures and ask, why did this happen? Look down in verse 2. Why, did, why does this text say this took place? And verse 2 says, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. And the point of verses 1 through 7 is to say, yes, here's, here's a history of Daniel and here's what happened. But I think most importantly to highlight that God was at work through providence. And he had a higher purpose. And what was his purpose in all this? His purpose for the nation of Judah was to punish them in judgment for their sin. He wanted them to repent and say, like, sin is painful. I mean, if you have children, hopefully you brought them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, or you are, which means that there's times when they sin and you bring some kind of pain in their life, right? That's actually a good thing. And we tell this to our children, especially when they were younger. We would tell them, like, we're bringing you a little bit of pain. Because we want you to know that sin is painful. And the worst pain of all is separation from God forever. And so God wanted Judah to turn from their sin. But also there's another aspect of this. And that is that, sin, that the God's providential judgment caused pain also to God's faithful people. And so I think what we can see here is that, the, that sin causes pain to God's people and to the disobedient. In other words... The pain of sin spills over into our, to affect our lives as well. When a husband is unfaithful to his wife, it will cause him pain, and it should. But it also causes her pain too, doesn't it? His sin hurts her. When a child rebels against his parents, his or her sin will have painful consequences for their life, but it also hurts the hearts and lives of the parents. 
when a church member sins against you or someone in the church, they will reap the pain for their sin. But that sin also affects us. When our country turns its back on the Lord and makes foolish decisions and follows after the gods of money and power, we will taste the bitterness of their sin. It will affect our life. So God's providential judgment causes pain to the disobedient, but also God's providential testing sanctifies the hearts of God's faithful. Look down in verse number 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Daniel and his companions were far from home. The heathen Babylonians were doing everything they could to to cause them to trust in their gods and not trust their God, the one true God, God of Judah. The Babylonian education was supposed to change their minds. The Babylonian customs were designed to change their way of life. Their new Babylonian names were given to try to alter their identity. The Babylonian luxury was to tempt their desires. So consider for a 14 or 15-year-old young man how difficult it would be to follow God and to obey his word and to live according to conscience. Think how difficult that would actually be. But in verse 8, the Bible says Daniel, as this young man, this would have been right when he went into Babylon, he resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. No one really knows for certain what it was about the food that offended Daniel's conscience. There's a lot of different ideas and theories out there. I'm actually going to go into this a little bit more next week. And it could have been because it wasn't kosher. It could have been because it was sacrificed to idols. Again, I'll talk about that uh, next week. But here, what I want you to see is that Daniel made a decision. He made a decision that could cost him his life. And he believed before God that God did not want him to eat that food and drink that drink. And so Daniel resolved in his heart to follow the Lord in this area. And I think what you see for Daniel here is that Daniel recognized God's providence was testing their hearts. God's providence was testing their hearts. He was refining their faith in him. Daniel's decision was really a decision of faith. I can imagine that Daniel and those three men gathered together, really probably talking about the newness of everything, but also in what was God doing in their lives. And I can imagine they talked about this. Here it says Daniel made this decision. Clearly he was some type of leader. And I can imagine that they talked and Daniel said, guys, listen, God has convinced me that this is something that we should not do. I mean, they would have been trained in the Old Testament scriptures. They would have known Proverbs, like Proverbs 17.3. The the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold. And the Lord tests the heart. And I can imagine them going back to verses like this and thinking like, okay, what is taking place? We're in a difficulty. We're in a trial. There's someone asking us to do something that's going to go against our conscience. What should I do in this situation? This is a test from God. God is testing our hearts. He's trying our faith. I mean, these guys would have thought back to Old Testament prophets like Job. I mean, what happened with Job? Oh, we learned the very end that God was testing him the whole time. And Job understood that that God knows the way that I take. It's not an accident I'm here in Babylon. It's not an accident this has all happened. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. I'm going to come out of it as gold. God is testing my heart like like. Like someone would test and try silver or gold in a refinery, God is testing my heart with this trial. The decision Daniel made was a decision of faith to trust in the Lord. You look at verse 9. Who was at work in the midst of these trials and temptations? It was God. Verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Daniel's request to the chief of the eunuchs was in faith that God would provide for them. 
And the king wanted these Jews, he, he wanted these Jews to look like rich Babylonian men. What does a rich Babylonian man look like? Well, you have fair skin and you're fat. Like many Americans, right? In other words, in our society, we actually all want to be tanner and we want to be skinnier, the exact opposite of them, right? So it's interesting how that works in cultures. You know, you go to, my brother-in-law is uh, over in Indonesia and he serves there on the mission field. And uh, when he first came there, he started putting this lotion on his skin because he needs lotion. And uh, he found out it wasn't regular lotion. That most of the lotion over there is whitening lotion. <laughs> and he's, he's white like me, maybe a little whiter. And he was like getting whiter every day, you know. And it's interesting how societies like that, they think the opposite is what is, you know, beautiful. And so, and that, so that for them, what they wanted is they wanted someone who was fairer and they wanted someone who was fatter, which represented wealth and represented health. And don't think I think that's true. I'm just, maybe the, maybe the fatter, I can believe that one, but no. So Daniel requested 10 days, and in those 10 days, they would only eat vegetables and drink water. And again, I'm going to go through this next week, verses 8 through 16 more specifically, and actually cover a different area. But what I want to kind of bring our minds back to is this, and that is that God providentially tested their hearts. There are many of you in here who are going through some very difficult things in your life, maybe in your marriage, maybe in school. Maybe just as you watch the news and think about what's going on in our country. Maybe your own personal struggle. Your own heart. God providentially uses those things to refine our faith. Do you realize the difficulties you're going through is God's work to cause you to trust him more? I mean, do we realize that the pain that we feel, the pain we feel as American citizens is actually God using this in our life to refine our faith so we will trust him. I mean, when we think about what's happening in our country, what do most Christians in America do? Or should, I should say many Christians in America. Many complain, many gripe, many like to post up their memes on whatever social media. You know, they're going to change the world through a post or whatever. How many go to the Lord in prayer? In other words, what is God doing through this? He wants us to depend on him. Since God is providentially at work in our lives, how should we thus respond? We should respond in faith. And when we have this perspective of God's providence, this should cause us to submit to God and ask him, God, how can I trust you? More now. In what ways, Lord, are you working in my heart so I will depend upon you more? Like, how can you use this problem to make me more like Christ? How can you use this problem to help me further the gospel? How, how can you use this in my life so I can serve you? In other words, we look at our life and what's happening, and it directs us back to faith in God, recognizing that what God is doing isn't just judging our country, although that is definitely taking place, I think. God is also refining believers. He's working in our heart. Well, I'm not going to be able to continue this whole sermon for my throat's sake, but also it's a lot longer than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> and so let me just end with you thinking about this, and that is the last aspect. God's providential triumph blesses his faithful people and glorifies himself. If you study those verses this week and consider that, that actually, in the end of the day, God's providence turns out to bless God's people. It's not a promise that he's going to get you out of your problem, right? They didn't obey the Lord there and then all of a sudden get transported back to Jerusalem. But they did have grace to help in their time of need. God did bless them within the trial that they were in. Is God at work in your life? Amen. Yes. He is. What is God doing? If you don't know the Lord, if you're not living a, da a daily life of repentance and faith, can I tell you the pain you feel in your life is God's call to you to say that sin is painful and a life of sin is painful, but eternal or eternity without Christ is painful and you need to turn to him. And God in his love took 
the pain upon himself on the cross. And if you call upon him, he can save you. And for us believers, when we think about the pain, we should consider that God is doing something in our life. And how should we thus respond? Praise to God. He's at work. And in requesting God, God, please change me to be more like Jesus Christ. We all, with open face, with unveiled face, behold in a glass the glory of the Lord, and we're changed into his likeness from glory to glory. And how's it done? By the Spirit of God. Let's pray. As we go to the Lord in prayer, I'm going to encourage you to respond to the Lord. When God's word is preached, God wants us to respond. And so if the Lord has worked in your heart in a particular way this morning, would you respond to him in prayer in your heart? Right where you're at, where you're sitting. Let's pray in our hearts to the Lord. Father, we believe you are God, and there is none else. There's no Marduk. <laughs> there's no Aku. There's no Nebo. We are not even our own gods, even though many act, think that they are, or at least pretend to be. You are God alone. You declare the end from the beginning from ancient times of things that are not yet done. And your counsel will stand. You will do everything that you please. And so, Lord, our response must be to bow before you, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Who are we to shake our fists in your face and say, I'm going to run my own life? We are your creatures. And for those of us in Christ, Lord, we are your children. And so we, as obedient children, want to follow you. We want to submit to you. We want to ask, Lord, change us. We don't want to be who we have been. We want to be who you want us to be. We want to be like your son, Jesus Christ. So thank you. That's a hard thing to say, isn't it, Lord? It's hard for us. Thank you. Thank you for the problems that are taking place in this world that push us to you. We don't want them to continue, but Lord, we're thankful that you love us enough that you sometimes cause pain in our life, so we'll look to the great physician, so we'll look to you and trust in you. We surrender our hearts and lives to you. We pray this in Jesus' name.